Hey there, podcast listeners. Welcome to a new episode of Field Days, an award-winning podcast about news and hot topics related to the Michigan Department of Corrections. Here are your almost witty hosts, Chris Gouts and Greg Straub. Hello and welcome to a new episode of Field Days Podcast. I'm Greg Straub, joined as always by the department spokesperson, Chris Gouts. Chris, today is a rough day for you. You sound like you um, are dying. I don't know what you're talking about. I think I sound just fine. Yeah, I'm not sure why we're doing this today, but I guess our, our guest is only available Duty calls. for a very short period of time. But I, I'm excited today because when our guest comes on, for some reason, I'm not sure why, but we get, we get pretty big ratings. What do you, what do you call Ratings or people listening. So I don't know why the budget is so fun for people to listen to. You know, when Kyle Kaminsky comes on, our ratings just shoot up. And I, I can't imagine today's no different, especially with the way you're talking and sound. So this is gonna be a great podcast today, Chris. I'm excited. Yeah, me too. Good, good. So today our guest is a great friend of the pod, the Offender Success Administrator and also Legislative Liaison, Kyle Kaminsky. Kyle, welcome back to Field Days for your sixth, seventh time, maybe? Where are we at? Probably not quite that many, but That's director I'm glad level. to be back. That's director level. You know that, right? She's been out here probably seven times, so, um, so we, can't, we can't have you go. And I've definitely only been here six times. <laughs> Good call. Good call. Smart um, man. So, you know, we we, uh, we previewed last week that it's budget season, and Chris previewed that you're going to be on this week to talk about the budget. So we're excited to get a glimpse of where we're at with our budget this year. But before we do that, Kyle, you know, I kind of explained who you are. Can you explain the budget process for those who may not have heard you before, kind of where it goes, where it starts, where it ends, and where we're at now. Sure. So it is a multi-step process that kicks off every spring. Most years it starts in February, but this year, because we have a new administration, we actually started formally in March. First step is that the governor lays out what is called the executive recommendation. And so that's the the governor's proposal for all state spending for all state departments. At that point, the legislature holds a number of hearings, and we're kind of right in the process of that right now, where they consider the executive recommendation, and then they will pass their own recommendations for each of the departmental budgets. They differ from the executive recommendation, sometimes in total dollar amount, but also they may add programs or subtract programs or change funding levels. That usually happens sometime around Easter. So we've got a few more weeks until that's done. And then everything kind of stops for a week or two. Then in May, we get what we call the final consensus revenue estimating figures, which is essentially how much money will the state have to spend next year. And then once we have that, we go into final negotiations between the executive, the House, and the Senate, with the goal being to complete a budget. The last eight years, we generally completed budgets around June 1st. Um, This year might be a little different because there's some bigger issues that the state's grappling with. Um, So there's some proposals, not so much in the MDOC budget, but some big proposals elsewhere in the budget that may have us working into the summer. Yeah, I've caught some of those big budget issues this year. Speaking for DOC, how how are we looking this year? From the MDOC perspective, we kind of have three priorities in terms of spending. We also have some offsetting cuts that we're looking to make. In, in total, we're pretty close to flat from the current year is what we're proposing. We're up a little bit due to economics, such as employee economics. But overall, we're, we're kind of still sitting right around that $2 billion mark where we've been for the last decade. Like I said, we had three priorities, things that we'd like to get. The big one and, and the most costly one is uh, some additional funding for new employee schools for corrections officers. We receive money every year in our budget that establishes kind of a baseline to allow us to hire new corrections officers. But with the number of retirements we've been seeing the last few years, the baseline simply isn't enough. 
So we've asked for an additional $10.5 million for the upcoming year, which if we receive all of that along with our baseline would allow us to hire about 780 new corrections officers statewide. And that would mean that by the end of the next fiscal year, so September of 2020, we'd be down to about 400 vacancies statewide, uh, which would be the lowest level we've yeah. been at in a number of years. Yeah, it sounds, 400 sounds like a lot, but we've been running a lot higher than that, right? Yeah, and, and that's kind of down in that area where overtime is at a good level. There's far less likelihood of mandated overtime at that level, but there's still some voluntary overtime available to staff, which we know some staff likes to be able to take advantage of. So sure. that's kind of right in that sweet spot of where we want to try to get to. The other two expenditures we're asking to make this year, one is a technology upgrade. Our GPS tether units are not going to be supported by Verizon after this year. They're built for the 3G network and Verizon's moving to a 4G network. So we need to spend about $4.6 million to replace all of those units. So our hope is that we'll get that money and then we'll be able to decommission the existing units and replace them with the ones that'll work with the new network. And then the last new expenditure we're looking for is about $2.1 million. We are planning and proposing to retrofit a housing unit at the Thumb Correctional Facility to help serve medically frail and aged prisoners. So we know these prisoners already exist. They're spread around within our department, but we think that there could be a benefit to having a specialized housing unit that can better serve some of their medical needs. And we are looking at the Thumb Correctional Facility as a site for that. That money would allow us to make some upgrades to the unit to make it more functional for folks who, many of which are in wheelchairs or have other handicaps. And it would also allow us to hire some additional healthcare staff to care for those prisoners. That's good. I, I have lots of questions to ask you, but I know you just testified last week. I have some. I have questions about that, but I'm sure Chris has questions. I'm just scared to have him start talking. So, <laughs> well, Kyle, I know we've talked about this before, but you mentioned earlier about the fact that our budget has really stayed constant at two billion. And could you talk about why that's a good thing and how, with all the pre- budget pressures and economics with employee costs going up, why that's a good thing? Yeah, absolutely. So we have been flat for about the last decade, and why that's so important is. We are a budget that's about 99% general fund. What that means is while the state spends north of $60 million a year on all of its operations, a lot of those dollars have strings attached. They come from the federal government or they come from something like the sales tax where they have to be directed to schools or local governments. There's a, a pot of money, though, that's about $10 billion a year that is general fund, which means the legislature and the executive can use it on any programs that they see fit. That is always how we've been funded. We don't have a dedicated funding source. So it's been very important that we maintain spending right around that $2 billion mark because, quite honestly, there's been a lot of pressure on the general fund the last few years. There's been increased spending out of the general fund on things like roads, some education expenses, and just other programs in other state departments. And so the MDOC has been really focused on trying to have savings that offset any increased costs. And the reality is we have increased costs every year because our, our biggest expenditure, about 75% of what we spend money on, is personnel. So as uh, contracts are renegotiated and there's raises or there's changes to benefits, we need to adjust to those economics. And so we've done that the last few years, obviously. The, the major way we've done that is through closure of facilities as our population has declined. But we've also had to seek out other efficiencies to make sure that we can stay at that $2 billion mark. And something that people have noticed in our last couple budgets, like you just mentioned, are closures, but but there's no closure recommended in this budget, correct? Correct. We're not proposing a closure. As we look at the numbers, um, we don't see a closure in the upcoming fiscal year right now based on our projections. With the most recent closure at Ojibwe, that kind of took us back down to zero in terms of the number of beds that we had that we did not need or that were not filled. While our long-term goal continues to be to bring down the prison population, we don't think that's going to be a subject of any intense discussion with the legislature this year. 
There are some reductions uh, in this budget, uh, but not a whole lot. And a lot of those that are in there, I think there's six programs that were earmarked by the legislature in, in years past that, that have remained in our budget and we're recommending removal of. And I don't know, most of those are on the field side. Maybe you could briefly touch on some of those that maybe some of the agents or supervisors out there are familiar with. Sure. You, you did share a, a good kind of summary of what these are. Over time, the legislature has added programs into our budget that were not necessarily things the MDFC was seeking. In some cases, they're not evidence-based or they're, they're just not consistent with our overall push and direction as a department. So we are asking that they be removed. As is always the case, this will end up being a negotiation between the department and the legislature in terms of if they remain removed. But the types of programs we're talking about are like the Goodwill Flip the Script program in Detroit, which serves probationers. You know, our, our feeling is that we have really robust, strong community corrections programs from around the state, and we'd rather see programs serving probationers move through that mechanism where they're reviewed on an annual basis and it's a a more competitive program rather than just one entity receiving the funds. The other types of programs that we are seeking to eliminate include the Supervising Region Incentive Program and we're actually really supportive of the programs that this funding mechanism supports. So that would be Ray's McComb and Ray's Van Buren, uh, which we've seen some early positive results out of. But unfortunately, when the legislature established the funding mechanism for this, they created this kind of strange system where we only get funded three months at a time, and it's really hard for us to run a program for only three months and, and really determine its success. So we want a more permanent funding stream for that. Uh, other programs that we sought to eliminate included the Parole Sanction Certainty Program, for substance abuse parolees. Again, it's not necessarily the core concept of that program that right. we are have issues with, but it's it's not competitively bid and it's not subject to the same types of performance measures that a lot of our other programs are. There was some money added to our budget for inspections of our kitchens by outside health departments. We just don't think that's necessary. The MDOC has licensed staff that performs that function already and has done that for a number of years. So we're asking to remove that. We have a high school online equivalency pilot, which we're actually still working on in terms of the RFP. But the reality is the legislature has given us money in previous years to fund the pilot, so we don't need any additional money for that. Those taken together with the remaining savings from the Ojibwe closure because it was closed partially through the year, so we'll be able to claim the full savings this year, adds up to about $10.5 million in savings that we're seeking this year. And I know uh, Greg has some questions about uh, some other legislation that's coming up aside from the budget, but before we leave the budget, I wonder if you could just briefly touch on the fact that we had a really uh, unique, uh, I don't know if it was historic, but it's certainly rare hearing with the Director of Washington where she testified at one of our prison complexes in Jackson and then did a tour. You could talk about that, I know you're pretty or- uh, involved in organizing that. One of the interesting things for us this year is there was quite a bit of turnover in the legislature, including on our subcommittees that helped determine our budget. In fact, from last year to this year, we only have one member who has worked on our budget and is still working on our budget. We have new chairmen on both sides. And so as we were talking to the, the House Budget Subcommittee about plans for possible hearings, they asked the question of, well, would it be possible to actually do a hearing at one of your prisons? Chairman Thomas Albert from the Ionia area had asked us that, and we looked into it and decided, yeah, actually that's something we can do. We conducted a public hearing down at the Cotton facility in the training building outside the secure perimeter, and then immediately after that, we took all the members of the committee as well as their staffs on a tour of RGC. They saw RGC and Dwayne Waters. It was really good because as we talked about some things in our budget around staffing and around medically frail prisoners, letting them actually see it with their own eyes and talk to staff and talk to, to prisoners 
really, I think, reinforce why we're asking for the things we're asking for. A couple brave souls, a couple brave legislators followed up the RGC tour with a tour down at WHV that afternoon, so it was a pretty long day for them. But it was really wonderful to get some of them down to WHV as well. We were able to see progress on the vocational village going on down there and also see a number of the different housing units and different programs. So it was great. It took a lot of work behind the scenes. Luckily, I didn't have to do all that much of it. It was really the wardens and the administrative staffs at the three facilities, Cotton, RGC, and WHV, that had to do the bulk of the work along with the director since she was the one who actually presented on the budget. Well, kudos to the staff. You're right. I, I know there's a lot of work that goes into that behind the scenes to make that happen. But what I mean, what a creative way to have a public hearing and to show them kind of what we do and what we need. That, that's good stuff. But I, I know that you also testified last week in front of the House Judiciary Committee. Mm-hmm. So aside from the budget, I, I do want to talk to you quickly about this. One of the topics you talked about is a big deal to FOA and the other to CFA. Talk about the two topics that you were discussing at the Judiciary Committee. The first was some legislation to create a special medical parole for uh, medically frail prisoners. What the legislation would allow us to do is take prisoners who have not served their minimum sentence yet, so they haven't reached their ERD, and if they meet the requirements of the bill, which are quite stringent around not only their health condition, but the possible risk they would pose, they could be paroled under the special parole and go to an outside nursing home that would be operated by a private vendor. That would allow for their care to be provided there. It would allow for Medicaid to pay the cost of that. As we look at the bills, we're not thinking that this is going to have a huge immediate impact on our population. Probably 20 to 40 prisoners would meet the standard today, but we know the prison population is getting older. Sure. And so this is about setting up a foundation for that. Also, if we're able to secure the funding for the project we'd like to do at Thumb, that'll help us as well because the bill won't won't apply to everybody. For instance, people serving life without parole sentences are not eligible under the bill, but may still need a higher level of care in the prisons. Right. That bill has actually passed the House now, and so we're, we're relatively early in the year in terms of legislative action, but we've seen one of our priorities for the year already pass the House, and it's uh, moved over to the Senate, and we're hopeful that we'll get a hearing out of the Senate in the next couple of weeks. The other bill that I testified on is one that's important to FOA and actually was an idea that came out of FOA. I think an EPIC team was the one who who did the work on this a few years back. There's a lot of staff in Livingston County who were involved in that EPIC team that are always asking about this bill. So uh, I'm excited for you to, to share that this is moving. And for that team, when I told them two or three years ago that when I can find the right timing, I'll get it done, they probably didn't believe me, yeah. but we seem to be going now. What the legislation would do is kind of scrap our current supervision fee model for parolees and probationers. A lot of work has been done in other states and some of the associations out there that work with folks in the field and there seems to be a a growing consensus that supervision fees should be kind of simple and straightforward and they should be at a level that offenders can actually pay. I think Michigan's current system quite honestly is one where we are charging fees to folks that we know quite honestly they're not going to be able to pay. We have to go through a a kind of a rigorous internal process to write some of those fees off and the rest go to collections. It's really not working for anybody because we're not getting compliance and it's it's creating a lot of work for us. And the criminal debt for people. Yeah, we become a a major collateral consequence of being in the criminal justice system because now as they're trying to find employment, maybe they're trying to apply for a loan to get a house, they've got this collection issue hanging over their head for potentially thousands and thousands of dollars. What the legislation would do is simplify all of this. For folks on regular supervision, either parole or probation, they would pay $30 a month or a dollar a day. For those who are subject to electronic monitoring, they pay $60 a month or $2 a day. So that would be different than the current sliding scale, which goes up to $135 for normal supervision and is $14 plus a day for electronic monitoring. The hope would be that even though we're charging individual offenders less, 
our aggregate collections will be the same or more. And, sure. and other states who have done this have produced that result. Well, I think anybody you talk to would say, you owe me $10,000 or you owe me $100, which one seems easier and more easy to grasp, right? The, the, the $100 we pay more. I mean, if I hear $10,000, I'm just going to shut down and not pay anything, right? Well, uh, yeah, it kind of becomes a good money after bad situation. Yeah. If you know you're so far in debt that you'll never be out of debt, Correct. you're not going to make that first payment, whereas we think at $30 and $60, well, while it's still it's real money, it's manageable. And so we had our first hearing uh, last week in the House Judiciary. I, I think probably by the time this podcast is out, we will hopefully have had a second hearing and hopefully have it out of the committee and ideally have a vote in the House before Easter. That will likewise go to the Senate at that point. We'll be working with them over there, but I think this is the most momentum we've had on this issue yeah. in the last few years. Well, and for staff, Kyle's telling the truth. He, he is working on this. He's not... Uh he didn't blow it off and say two years later. You know, this is a, you know, we appreciate that, Kyle, because this is this is a huge win for us, not only for the collection of money, but for offenders and their long-term success. You know, if, if they have to pay child support, if they have all these other bills to pay, this is better for them long-term. So much appreciated that you're working on this. We really do appreciate it. What other questions you got about the budget, Chris? I know you can barely talk over there, but. Yeah, yeah. we uh, we covered, I think, like I mentioned last, uh, <coughs> last week on the podcast, I didn't get a single call from a reporter about this yeah. budget. We were really kind of stay in the course. And like you said, there's a lot of other budgets that are much more high profile and we're trying to fix the damn roads and, and do a bunch of other things. And that's where kind of the focus is right now. Right. I would agree. I think the budget process itself is kind of complicated behind the scenes and we're hustling every single day on it. But so far, we're pretty optimistic about where we're at. We think it's a very realistic budget that we've put in front of the legislature as far as the MDOC is concerned. We think we've done a good job laying the groundwork and that we've identified what are some of our core needs that need to be addressed this year and, and staffing being the number one. Well, Kyle, you've said a lot here. We appreciate it. Budget time is always stressful for staff, especially, you know, recently, the last few years. So thanks for coming on and kind of sharing where we're at right now, where we're at in the process, what we're looking forward to in the next fiscal year. Well, Chris, that was a very enlightening conversation centered around our budget. It is really, actually, we make fun of Kyle sometimes, but it is fun to have Kyle come on and talk about the budget because he does know the process and he knows how to work over there and get, get things done. It's nice to have him on. It was also nice to have him talk about some of the things that we're working on, like the flat fee for probation and parolees. That's a big thing for FOA. You know, a lot of people have put a lot of work into that thought process and, and moving towards that model. So very nice for him to come on and talk about what's going on, and I, I'm sure that'll make a lot of people around FOA happy uh, that, we're, that we're going in that direction. So MI continues. I saw a lot of tweets last week about MI training. Uh, yeah, I saw those too. Yeah, there's, there's a lot of training going around the state right now. And that's it's very cool. For it's for no, CFA, CFA too, yeah. Have you been trained yet? Uh, I have not. I have okay. not. I have not you're changed your attitude yet. You're going to be trained, right? Sure, i got to fix you. Yeah. <laughs> you're not a fixer, Chris. Let me fix myself, okay? I'm going to uh, tell you that you need to fix yourself. <laughs> so MI training is going on across the state, and I've seen a few emails floating around from staff who have, you know, sent emails into Teresa or other MI trainers, and they're, they're having some positive experiences because the training is you go for two days, you learn the first two sections or days of MI training, you go away for a month, you apply it in your in your work area, and then you come back for two more days. So people are applying the, the MI methods. I think they're, they're seeing some pretty good results. A lot of the emails say we've had prisoners in our facility where, like a WCC, where they injure themselves on purpose for you know being told no or for, for some certain reason. And with staff using these skills, they are seeing results. They are seeing prisoners who are understanding why they're behaving that way because our staff are helping them come to those determinations. And there's other ones where PSI writers are using these skills and, and talking to, to, to the offenders in a different way where they're gleaning more information for our PSIs. This stuff works, Chris. I'm glad to see a lot of staff are 
sending in their experience and, and, the, and their positive experience. Yeah, we're looking forward to hearing more of those. We've been asking people to send those in. We'll try to get those in the newsletter each month and kind of show, uh, hopefully, each month what's going on and how MI is actually working and making an impact and put some of those on Twitter as well. So, yeah, it's great news all around. Well, do you want to mention who's producing this podcast today, Chris? I don't know if you uh, are ready. Oh, to yeah, we haven't, uh, we haven't broken the news yet. I mean, I don't have to do it for you. You are the boss of this group up here, other than me, of course. No, I, I, boss, I'm, but, I'm absolutely um, your boss. You should you should at least introduce your staff to, to, the, to the listeners. Yeah, everybody knows that uh, when we started this podcast, uh, Kamar Lewis was our uh, social media coordinator, and, and then we dubbed her podcast producer. Extraordinary. She had to learn uh, that on, on the fly, and... And she's left us for, uh, I, I wasn't going to say greener pastures, but NBOC is probably the best place around. So, uh, yeah, there's nothing really better than this. But she did find another uh, job in state government. Uh, and so we ended up hiring uh, a new social media coordinator, Joelle Craddy, CMU grad. <laughs> of course, I didn't mention that. Uh, but it just so happened I was extremely well qualified. Came here from uh, the fifth floor here in central office in uh, procurement. Uh, but it turns out that she had a a big background in integrated public relations and broadcasting, good with social media. So yeah, we're ever happy to have Joelle on, and she's producing this podcast. And she's the one now sitting here rolling her eyes at you. As yes, you instead of instead of Kamara. Yeah, and so when I mess up or if I get her bio wrong, she'll edit that out. And um, but no, we're really excited to have Joelle on. We had 132 applicants for this job, and uh, Joelle was uh, the best, and we're really happy First to have her all, here. Uh, I can't believe 132 people wanted to work for you. But, uh, uh, yeah, yeah. Hey, You'd be amazed. Power to You'd be amazed. And, and kudos to Bree who who stepped up, took over the podcast when you know Holly's gone. Yeah, it was a, it was a big transition. We had transition. Holly and well, and Holly's she's had, not gone. I mean, she's not gone. Yeah, she's and well, the other breaking news is Holly's had her baby. That's what it got. So yeah, Holly, so she's Holly off on maternity baby. leave. So congrats to to Holly and. Uh, her family and and little Eli. Well, I didn't say little. He was pretty big baby. Yeah, he's a big baby. So, yeah, a lot, a lot of big news going on here in our office. You know what? Let's let's get you better. Let's get you some medicine so you sound better in the next the next podcast. I don't know if I'll sound good. better, but I'll at least be healthier. That's, that's a great point. Let's let's get you healthier. Yes. And let's uh, make sure everybody tunes into a new episode of Field Days podcast. As always, thank you for listening. We'd love it if you would help us spread the word about the podcast. You can do that by subscribing to the show on iTunes and leave us a review. You can always follow the department on Facebook at MI Corrections and on Twitter at Michigan DOC, as well as the FOA account at MDOC FOA and the CFA account at MDOC CFA. And you can send any questions you have to the show using the hashtag AskFieldDays. Until next time... Thanks for tuning in to Field Day's podcast.